Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome! Ah, it's For the Girls Podcast. This is a podcast about you and your diva. This is about gays gabbing about girls. This is about queers who are obsessed with iconic female performers. And today we're so excited. Who do we have on? We have John Epperson on today. Uh, also known as... Lip John is an amazing actor and playwright and drag performance artist, and he's really just one of the great drag performers of all time. He has acted in his own plays, other people's plays, movies, and such incredible venues as the Pyramid Club, Joe's Pub, and Wigstock. I saw him uh, a couple years ago, I think, in An Evening at the Talk House by Wallace Shawn. Oh, you saw that? Yeah, with Matthew Broderick, which was so brilliant. Did I see you that night? I don't think think so. You know, we were on stage... Greeting the audience when they, I don't know. I the, think I'm, I probably did because I'm friends with Matthew, but and he's also um, I also saw at the Connolly the la- when you did the Lipsinka trilogy. Oh yeah, which was the last time I got to see Lipsinka. It was so amazing. And also, John and Charles Bush provided commentary on the recent DVD release of a favorite movie of mine. Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Well, Jason, it wasn't so recent. Oh, okay. it was. <laughs> it was about ten years ago or so. But that leads us into John. I know you had many a lady you could come in here and talk about, but we're today we're talking about your love for and appreciation of. You want me to say that? Go name? ahead, Lucille Lassure. Yes, <laughs> Billy Casson. Yes. What was named? Joan she Crawford. Wa- John Crawford. Yeah. John Crawford. Joan Crawford. Today. Joan Arden was also something that I think she wanted. Is that right? Supposedly, yeah. yeah she. Well, it, I don't know that she wanted it because it was a contest that they had at MGM to rename Lucille Lassure, and they asked fans to send in names so crazy and they send in according to her the name Joan Arden and they used it for a while and then they found out there was a Joan Arden and so they used Crawford this is what she says just because she said it doesn't necessarily mean it's so because this is a woman who lived a life of illusion you know you're telling us that Joan Crawford was not entirely honest with her public (laughs) Well, illusion and honesty could be two different things, you know. Mm. They they touched on it in Feud a bit. And I had already been thinking about this for a while, and I was wondering as I was watching Feud if they were going to touch on it, and they did in the last episode. Did you guys see the last episode of yes, Feud? Yes, it was amazing. And it's in that scene where she's having a kind of dream, and she sees... Betty Davis and Hedda Hopper and Jack Warner in what around I her, guess is her apartment and yeah, they're all around sitting around the table and she sits down with them and she says to them I realize that I don't really know who I am hmm. and that was 
I think the best thing about that show, because I had already done my research about Joan Crawford, and there's this book that a man wrote about his relationship with her. It's called, I think it's called Crawford, The Last Years, or Mm -hmm. The Final Years. The Last Years. By a man named Carl Jonas, J-O-H-N-E-S. A little paperback, I don't think it ever came out in hardback. And um, I moved to New York in 1978, and that book came out in 77 or 78, right after she died. I don't think he was reluctant to publish it while she was alive. And according to him, she said to him, I've realized I don't know who I am. It's in the book. You know, I've realized I've been playing a role or a variety of roles my whole life, whether it was Mildred Pierce or Harriet Craig or the uh, character, the flapper that she played in Our Dancing Daughters or the uh, stenographer in Grand Hotel. She had taken, she acknowledged in this book that I, she said, I've realized I was playing all these parts in my own life, and I don't know who I am. So she had an identity crisis in those last three years when she was in retreat in her apartment on the east side. And they acknowledged that in feud, but you could also tell they didn't want to pay the rights for that book. And so they, <laughs> they, they, they kind of worked their way around it. And at one point when Jessica Lange, if you remember in the last episode, she's struggling to get a dress on and she can't zip it up herself. And so she sits down with resignation and she picks up the phone and she says, Carl, I can't come to lunch today. So I think that was Carl Jonas, the man who wrote that book that the that writers the, had was read. A little nod to a little nod to him. Oh, I wish they would have given him some royalties or some money. Well, I think he's dead, but there, oh. but there may be that's crazy. someone who owns the rights to that book somewhere. So right, so in '78, so that book was released, and Mommy Dearest was '78 too, right? Mm-hmm. So, so right when you hit New York City, how did you first come to Joan Crawford? Though was it? Before you came to New York? Oh, yes. Well, take us back. I grew up hearing my family say the name Joan Crawford. And the thing they most talked about was, did Anne Blythe and Joan Crawford slap one another in the movie Mildred Pierce? Or were they faking it, you know? We were just just watching that that. scene. (laughs) Well, don't they each slap one another? She gets slapped and falls, falls on the stairs. And Blythe slaps her. Yeah. Right? You think just because you made a little money you can get a new hairdo and some expensive clothes and turn yourself into a lady. But you can't. Because you'll never be anything but a common frump whose father lived over a grocery store and whose mother took in washing. With this money I can get away from every rotten, stinking thing that makes me think of this place or you. Peter! But doesn't Joan Crawford slap Anne Blythe at one point I think earlier in the movie she slaps Vita. And now you know. You know, don't you? Know what? Know what, Mother? You knew when you gave that uniform to Lottie that it was mine, didn't you? Your uniform? Yes, I'm waiting tables in a downtown restaurant. My mother, a waitress. 
I took the only job I could get so you and your sister could eat and have a place to sleep and some clothes on your backs. Aren't the pies bad enough? Did you have to degrade us? Vita, don't talk like that. I'm really not surprised. You've never spoken of your people, who you came from, so perhaps it's natural. Maybe that's why father... <gasps> but at the oh. point where she tears up that check... Yeah, I know that scene you're Ambulite talking about. Slaps Ambulite slaps her. Her fall onto the banister is perfect because she catches herself right before her face leaves the light. Oh. impeccable. <laughs> <laughs> well, she certainly knew what she was doing yeah, in front of a did. camera, didn't she? Yes. And she struggled for that role, too. Struggled. To get it? To get to get, it. To get yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of opposition for her. So right. your parents, your family would just argue about whether or not they were really doing it or it was fake? Well, my family never argued. They were too Southern for that. They would discuss it, you know. Where in the South <laughs> was are you fake? from? A small town called Hazelhurst, Mississippi. Did you ever see a play or a movie called Crimes of the Heart? Of course. Of course. Well, it's set in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. Oh, wow. oh, but it was not filmed, are... not filmed there, mind you, but... Set there. set there. So, Joan, so you... We've gotten away from Joan Crawford. And we will, and that's fine. <laughs> that's okay. So something about that, conver- that conversation, about the slap, is that when you're, yeah, is that well, when that, you're like, no, I'm going to pay attention? Who were they talking about? Who were, you know, who, I was listening as a kid. You know what Eudora Welty used to say when she was a kid? You know who Eudora Welty was, the, the writer, the writer from, in yeah. Jackson, Mississippi? When she was a kid, she liked to go on family trips in the car, and, and she would get in the back seat and she'd say, okay, now talk, oh. you know, and she would listen to her family. And then that became the fodder for her novels and short stories was just hearing people talk. The and, dynamics. And, and, and when I read that, I thought, yeah, that's what I was doing, but not so consciously the way Eudora Wilty was doing it. But yeah, I would hear them talk about this woman named Joan Crawford, and did she get slapped in that movie or not, or were they faking it? And then the next thing I knew, there was this thing called uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane that so intrigued me, but I was too scared because I was told it was a horror movie, so I was, what, seven? Too scared to go see that. I just had to hear about it. And then, of course, then we hear the name Betty Davis. Who's that? And then there was this other Betty Davis movie a couple of years later called Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Well, what's that about, you know? So when did you see, when did you see uh, Whatever Happened? Huh. You heard about all of these and, you, and you, you've got, like, you could sense that there's something, I don't know, majestic? Something intriguing about this woman, right? <laughs> Larger um, than life. <laughs> what, what is... Well... Maybe not majestic, but I probably didn't see whatever happened in Baby Jane until I got to college, and I didn't get to college until 72. But after uh, whatever happened in Baby Jane, which I refused to go and see, then I don't know what I went to see. Maybe it was uh, The Unsickable Molly Brown in 64, but there were trailers for movies, you know, and so there was this trailer for a movie called Straight Jacket, and that was just torment for me to see images from that movie at age nine. It was so scary looking, especially a shot looking down at a striped bathroom, and she's trapped in it, and do you know this shot? Yeah. But it turns out to be just like a dream she's having. She's trapped in the bathroom, and she can't get out. Something happens to me. 
something frightening. From the loneliness and simplicity of an isolated farm to the sophisticated elegance of a country estate, Straight Jacket mounts to a crescendo of electrifying suspense. Sinister. <coughs> Frightening. Joan Crawford in a shattering screen portrayal. A frantic woman pressured by straitjacket tension. Leave me alone! You let go of me! Listen to me! Ingeniously designed to shock and startle, straitjacket may go beyond the limits of your ability to endure suspense. Mother! Oh my God! The author of the famed novel Psycho the director of the widely acclaimed chiller, Homicidal. The co-star of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Join forces to create a frightening classic of shock and suspense. So Joan was a, a, a sense of terror for you as a child. Yeah, she represented fear, yes. <laughs> I don't believe you're the only child who no, had that experience. No, I don't think I was either, yeah. And then I guess the first Joan Crawford movie that I actually saw was I Saw What You Did and I Know Who You Are. Do you know that one? No. You, you guys are looking at me like you don't know that one. How, no. can, how can you not know that one? I, I know. No. Tell, Tell us about us. it. <laughs> well, she has a, only a small part in it, but it's the same director who made Straight Jacket, William Castle. So I Saw What You Did. Um, do you remember? remember well maybe you don't because you're a lot younger than me but in the 60s there was a game that people would play they would get the phone book and they would just call, look <laughs> up numbers at random and call people is this is this game called prank calling prank, prank. we would prank call it prank calling, calling. yeah we would yeah do i that. guess yeah, yeah. Oh, okay we would do that okay so it's about it's about uh, these two young girls who are just oh, yes. prank calling, and they call up this name at random out of the phone book, and mm-hmm. they say, "I saw what you did, and I know who you are," but they don't know that he actually did just kill his wife in the shower, like in Psycho. Wow! And then mm-hmm. it starts. The story leaves the two girls, and it starts following him, and Joan Crawford is his girlfriend who lives next door and he has just killed his wife and she figures out that he's just killed his wife and then he kills Joan Crawford. But before he kills her, she, the girls, have found his address and and they drive to where he lived because they think his voice is sexy. What? And Joan Crawford catches the girls peeking into the house and she has this whole hilarious scene where she's saying, Now get out of here! You little tramp! Throwing yourself at him, chasing him! I don't even know him! Get out of here! You're a liar! I heard you on the telephone! Now get out of here! Please, we didn't mean to cause any trouble. It was just a game. I know what kind of a game with a man over twice your age. Now get out of here! Look! Just a minute. If you ever try to see him I or won't. call him again, I promise I won't. You'd better promise. Now get in there. 
Go on. Go on home. Look, honey. You're too young. <laughs> and then he kills her. He kills Joan Crawford. She has this long slide to her death down his body, you know, oh. after he stabbed her in the Ooh. abdomen. She was really perfecting gruesome deaths by the end of her career, wasn't she? <laughs> well, yeah. Something gruesome. She was perfecting something gruesome. I mean, Gruesomeness. So after I saw what you did, you see, and I managed to sit through that and it didn't kill me, then... I thought, okay, now I'm ready for any Joan Crawford movie that comes like, along. Bring it on. Right. But Baby Jane wasn't available, you know. It had come and gone. So the, only, the next one was Berserk, and I sat through that. And I was, by then I was 13, and so that wasn't, I was a lot more sophisticated <laughs> by then. <laughs> a refined palate. And, and that was gruesome and fun and stupid and silly, you know. But I didn't see Trog, I don't think. That was her last film, right? Yeah. yeah. But did, so I guess I saw Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. They showed it where I went to school. Did you know right away that you were in love with this this person on the screen? That you were in, intrigued? Or like, what was, what was that like? Well, I think the, the thing that fascinated me the most was just her face. Because... At some point, like around the late 40s, her face became more like a graphic than a human face, you know, that the eyes and the lips lips. and the eyebrows were so big and strange and unusual that it was more about the visual than it was about what was going on in her personal life, which I knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. you Uh, You have to understand, around 1968... There was um, a nostalgia boom that started happening Mm. in the United States. I think mainly because the hippies and the counterculture and college kids were latching on to Humphrey Bogart and W.C. Fields. There was something about Mm. them that held appeal for young people. Yeah, And so old movies started getting popular and old images of old movie stars and posters were available that you could buy of Mae West. And and I was fascinated, too, by these black and white images that would occasionally pop up on television. But then, because people realized they could make money off of this um, nostalgia boom that movie theaters in large cities started showing old movies... And they started having what were called revival houses. Oh, cool. When I moved to New York there in 78, there were a lot of re- revival houses. There were, oh. The most popular one was near Lincoln Center on Broadway, just north of Lincoln Center, uh, called the Regency, which had been just a neighborhood movie house in mm-hmm. the 30s and 40s. And now it was a place where you could go see a, a different double bill every two or three days of an old movie or old movies i should say and i was just the right age i think to be caught up in this trend that was going on this nostalgia trend and this trend kind of peaked with uh, that's entertainment you know those movies mm-hmm. and joan crawford was alive in 74 and of course she's in there are clips of her in that's entertainment but by the time that movie came out, she had retreated to 
her apartment and didn't go out. And so, well, she had done this event at Town Hall in 1973, Town Hall here in mm-hmm. Manhattan. And it was a part of a series called Legendary Ladies of the Silver Screen. She agreed to do this live interview with a man named John Springer. And they showed clips from her old movies, and then she came out on stage and he interviewed her. And then after that, I think a year later, she agreed to be the hostess at a party at the Rainbow Room after the legendary ladies of the Silver Screen night with Rosalind Russell, who was a friend of hers. So Rosalind Russell did this event at Town Hall, and then there was a party afterwards at Rainbow Room, and Joan Crawford was the hostess of the party at the Rainbow Room. Miss Crawford, what does it feel like to be one of the most famous and most beautiful faces and intelligent ladies in the world? Famous, right. Intelligent, not always, but it, it's great, whatever it is. Can you tell us about the book? Are you thrilled, you know, being in another book and uh, being talked about and so Well, it's so amazing, on? all of the uh, nostalgia. Is there any way you could possibly do another movie again? Would you go back on the screen? They don't write for ladies anymore, but I have news for you. We're here to stay. Oh, <laughs> you've never left. You've never left. The Inquirer, the National Enquirer, printed photographs of Joan Crawford from that night and they were very unflattering and she said if that's the way they're going to show me I'm not going out anymore and she didn't oh so she didn't go out again and of course that brings us up to today because who is the publisher of the National Enquirer we don't have to say his name but he's a friend of our so-called president the other name we don't have to say right ever she it's funny because she's at once so tragic and and there's a comedy to that but she was so very very vain i mean the vanity was such a big part of it i think of like the stories of her taking out you know teeth to give herself a better jawline and all this stuff it was it was a very intense scrutiny she was under for physical beauty can you talk a little bit about what that was like for her in her early days in the studio. Well, it's interesting, Nick, that you said she was tragic because that's the way I see Joan Crawford now as a tragic figure. Mm -hmm. And I was glad that the writers on A Feud saw that too and Mm -hmm. presented it that way. I see her as... um, as tragic as Judy Garland and Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe, but the difference between her and the three of them is that the unhappy things that were supposedly going on in Joan Crawford's life were not in the press while she was alive. They didn't come out until after she was dead. Mm-hmm. I think the other three, including Elvis, they were writing about their troubles before they died. Why did the press not write about Joan Crawford's troubles before she died? I don't know. It's interesting that they Mm. chose not to. Or if she had some control over that, or if she, you know, if she was controlling her press image more tightly than they did. They did in the 30s call her a box office bomb. And then she had a kind of... But she wasn't the only one. There was a whole list. Yeah, there's a whole... Rosalind Russell was also on that list. And Dietrich and Fred Astaire, you know. I'm talking about the 
supposed beating of the children. Uh, all of the, all of the, yeah, because like I said, when she died, then this book that you were just mentioning was released, and then... And Mommy Dearest. Mommy Dearest, and into her image all of a sudden just... Do you think it's because it involved children that they didn't... Do you think the press knew? I think they probably did. If it's true, we're still not completely sure it was true. You know, we only have really one person's word for it. Right. But was she, when she first came to Hollywood, uh, Lucille Lesur, was, was she not considered beautiful by the studio? I mean, I think she's so incredibly beautiful, but she seems to um, keep this constant changing of her appearance to please, you know, the studios or um, the executives or the public. Reinventing herself. Reinventing her image. Can you talk about why that was or what? what she was going through. And I just wanted to say a little more that ties into what your, your question is about the tragedy of Joan Crawford. Oh, yes, please, absolutely. She's kind of the, just like the other three people that I mentioned a minute ago, kind of embodies uh, the best and worst of the American dream in the 20th century or the American condition, if you want to call it that, that she, like the others, reached a pinnacle, but there was also this really ugly underside Mm -hmm. to all of that. And the sacrifice that you have to do to maintain the image of the good part. And in a way, she's... Not unlike the man whose name we're sick of hearing. Right. Because uh, maintaining this image of greatness, you know, is uh, something that he tries to do every day, and she did too. She kept it going for a long time. Greatness is really the word for it too. And and illusion of greatness. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of the tragedies of Joan Crawford is that she bought into the concept of a movie star, you know, right? which is such a soul-killing thing, I think. But why wouldn't she? She came from very poor background, and here was this opportunity to make money and be adored. And the studio was saying, and this is how you maintain that, you know, Mm -hmm. by doing this constant press and feeding the public what you want them to hear and what they think they want to hear. And so she bought into it, whole hog. And she perpetuated it and she perpetuated it. And there were good things from that. But there must have been soul-killing things from it, too. But you take the good with the bad, right? right. Well, and like you said, you know, at the, end of, at the end of her life, she said, I've played so many things. I don't know who. I never, you know, found exactly who I was. I had to be, you know, was so many different people. image that was constantly changing. It's funny, when you mentioned earlier Elvis and Judy and Marilyn... They are all also victims of be, of that of buying into the idea of movie stardom or super stardom. It's yeah. that that level is so high, and it's not a person. It's an when you become an icon, 
An icon doesn't have a soul. A person has a soul. An icon doesn't have a life. A person has a life. And if you're always living as the icon and not feeding the Lucille Lesseur, yeah, you know, what does she love? Like, what is people talk about Norma Ray? Like, what did Norma Ray love or Francis Gum? You Nor- know, Norma Jean. You mean Norma Jean? Oh, not Norma Ray. Oh, <laughs> added, added that. You know, well, no, that? keep it in, please. <laughs> <laughs> I, when you said Norma Ray, I was like... You were with me. Were you with me? <laughs> no. I was like... Oh, like we're going to talk about unions now? I was like, so I was like, Sally Fields, Norma Ray? What are you talking about? But I, we're going to do a whole episode about Barbara Baxley, who plays Sally Fields' mother. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes, please. Yeah, no, I will do an entire fucking cut. episode about how Sally Field beat Bette Midler for the Oscar that year, though, which <laughs> still gets me real riled up. Mm-hmm. Is that the Rose year? Yeah, mm-hmm. for the Rose. <clears throat> yeah. And Jason, I see you having a Bette Midler t-shirt. I do. I just I noticed that. Mine's over here. And you're both color-coordinated. Look at you. And speaking of iconness, is I mean, I guess Lip Sync is an icon, and John is a person. You <laughs> you understand probably that that differentiation a lot in a lot more healthy way than Joan Crawford understood hers. Well, Lip Sync is kind of a parody of celebrity. Let's get into that. When did that start? When did Lip Sync start? Yeah. Was it from watching all of these screen legends? Is that some of the inspiration that you were pulling from? Well, I think, I think partly that. I think there are other deep-rooted psychological reasons for why I wanted to create another character that I could hide behind, really, and... And the fact that it's a female character, that's another complication. And the fact that <laughs> it is often not even my own voice, it's another complication. Well, unlike our friend Mr. Westrade here, I was not trained to be an actor. I wanted to be an actor, but I had really had very little training. I took a, some kind of speech and drama course in college but i wasn't trained to be an actor i didn't i didn't go to audition class you know so when i came to new york with this foolish notion of being an actor i you know i had no training in anything really except how to play the piano that i didn't know how to do so i was trained only to play the piano but i had this fanciful idea that i could be an actor right but i came to new york and i had no training and it was so scary to even think about going to an audition in New York City. I mean, I had auditioned in Mississippi, but this is New York City where you have to be a triple threat. You have to know how to do everything. I didn't know how to do anything as far as being an actor went. And then I realized, oh, I could hide behind someone else's voice and really paint another face on and... And that was a form of acting. Yeah. But it was really an unhealthy form of acting, you know, because, like I said, I was hiding. I was like Marnie. I was creating a new identity for myself. I was like Sarah Jane in the movie Imitation of Life. Do you guys know that movie? She creates another identity to pass for white. I was was passing for Lipsinka, let's say. Was not a healthy thing, really, in a way. And then, like Joan Crawford, she created Lucille Lesseur, created Joan Crawford, John Epperson created Lipsinka. Maybe not a totally health, not totally not healthy to, yeah. thing to do. Because sometimes it is good to 
have these, what's another rip size icon? A superhero character that you kind of go into that gives an you strength. Ego. An alter ego. Yeah. That you can, you know, whereas, I don't know, Jason is insecure and problematic or whatever. And then I have this, I could have another character that is strong and imbues all of the stuff that I don't feel for myself. Well, we so, all do that to one degree or another. Right. There's the public face. There's a private face. Yes. Yes. And so that's what I was doing, and, and that's what Miss Crawford was doing. How aware was she of what she was doing? Maybe not. It sounds like until those three years when she was in retreat. We don't think that Joan was in, uh, uh, went to a very good analyst, do we? <laughs> I don't think Joan went to an analyst at all. No. But it pleases me when I read that Carl Jonas book to know that she finally faced this identity crisis that she had in the last three years. Must have been there, terrifying. To you mean when she, those three years when she faced it? Yeah. Except the way he writes it in the book, it was a, a gentle realization. It wasn't... Hmm. What was his relationship to her? Well, <laughs> he worked at Columbia Pictures, which had an office still in New York on Fifth Avenue. And even though Crawford hadn't made a movie for Columbia in a while, she did have a contract with them at a certain point, and she still thought of Columbia as her studio. And she, in her apartment, I guess it was the apartment on East 69th, that building called the Imperial House, where Mm -hmm. Liza Minnelli recently lived until very recently, Crawford wanted to move some books. This is all in his book. She wanted to move some books from one part of side of the apartment to another side of the apartment. And so she called up Columbia and <laughs> said, can you send someone over here to help me move some books? And so whoever answered the phone thought, hmm, who could do that? Let's say books. Well, there's that guy, Carl. He's young and cute and maybe gay. And he works in the story department, and that relates to books. We'll send him. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so he went over and helped her move the books, and she liked him, and uh, they got to be friends, you know. She moved apartments at the end. In, I think she moved, like, across the hall. Or in something. that building, In yes. that building. Right. So, yeah. Now I'm fantasizing that, he, that, she, that she called on her. Her friend Carl. Her companion Carl. You said to move apartments? Mm-hmm. Mm, she could have. Don't remember that detail. But that's how they got to know one another, and she liked to play backgammon, and so did he. And uh, she liked having a new, young, cute friend around. That's how they got to know one another. Why do you think, uh, speaking of that Columbia executive, just thinking, oh, Carl, why do you think it is that gay men or queer men are attracted to Joan Crawford? Well, I was going to ask the two of you, why are <laughs> gay men attracted to divas in general? Yes, this is, well, this is the what we're trying thing. to Do you have a theory? Out. So many. Yeah, well, tell me. Tell um, me well, one or two. Um, <laughs> I think it has to do with strength. I think it has to do with um, they have the moxie to be themselves when we are at a time in life when we're hiding ourselves, you know, and... um, There wasn't, and I think it's completely changing, but there wasn't, you know, representation, at least for me. And I never saw myself with masculine mm -hmm. performers, with men performers. I was never drawn to that energy. 
that never excited me. But the question me. is, why are you why? drawn to this other energy? Well, I guess maybe because I couldn't identify with... I, I really felt at odds with men. And so possibly it was something of just feeling more at home with... With the ladies. With the ladies, with the... With the, with the songs, with the musical numbers. It is something that we are, you know, throw it back to you. What, what do you think? I think all of that. But I also think that um, gay men in a patriarchal society feel like and are made to feel like, even if it's not consciously being made to feel like um, the other, with quotes around it, quote, the other, unquote. And these women are the other also. And they're the other because they're either freakishly beautiful, and beautiful people are the other, or they're very sexual, or they're very talented, Mm -hmm. or they're very vulnerable, and all of those things are the other. A good example is, let's say, um, Natalie Wood. Very Mm. beautiful, very talented, very vulnerable, very sexy. She's all of those things. And Margaret, the same way. Streisand and Garland and Bette Midler are all freakishly talented, and so they're different from the ordinary person, and we feel different from the ordinary mm-hmm. person, and so we relate to them. How does that sound? That, that sounds, sounds great. great. That's too, too highfalutin. No, I no, love that. It's perfect. When I'm, I'm going to take us back in our conversation a little bit. When you were talking about these revival houses in the 70s, do you remember the first non-horror picture of Jones you saw when you really started exploring her work before she became a queen of the horror genre? That's a good question. Hmm. Could have been the women. The Regency showed the women occasionally, and I remember going to see it there and seeing it for the first time. I know it was the first time I saw it, and the place was packed with gay men, and, and they were all wearing the clone look, you know, because, remember, do you know what the clone no, look was? No, what was the clone look? <laughs> well, Stonewall was 69, right? Mm-hmm. And gay men wanted to say, we're like everyone else, you know, we're masculine also. We're out and we're gay, but we're also masculine, so a lot of gay men adopted the Marlboro Man look. The faded blue jeans, the flannel plaid shirt, the handlebar mustache, maybe even a cowboy hat. Mm-hmm. Or a leather jacket with the leather cap. You know, the Tom of Finland mm-hmm. look. Right, the Tom of Finland look. Yeah. So there's a bunch of butch queens watching the women. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's a scene. <laughs> Or wanting to appear to be butch queens watching the women, let's say. (laughs) But that was interesting because they were presenting themselves as butch, but they also wanted to have fun at the women. The women is such a fabulous movie. Well, girls, looks like it's back to the perfume counter for me. And by the way, there's a name for you ladies, but it isn't used in high society outside of a kennel. So long, ladies. Oh, oh, it's, just, it's just bananas. I just, it's everything. <laughs> well, I just watched, uh, just finished it yesterday because I watch these things over a course of a few days because I usually watch movies while I'm eating at home. Uh, a Woman's Face. You guys know I that movie? Know a Woman's a Face. A Woman's Face. Well, A Woman's Face was originally a Swedish film with Ingrid Bergman in 1938 before Bergman 
left Sweden to go to Hollywood. And it's about a woman whose the right side of her face has been scarred. I forget why in the Bergman version she has a scarred face, but in in the Crawford version, uh, her father was a, a drinker and caught the house on fire. And Crawford character got caught in the fire and she's so badly scarred that she becomes an outsider in society just what we're talking about Mm -hmm. and becomes a a criminal a crook a a con woman (laughs) that takes us back to you know who but we won't go there for (laughs) now and she gets caught by a plastic surgeon and he uh, restores her face but before she gets her face restored by this plastic surgeon, she has met another con man, played by an actor in the Crawford version named Conrad Veidt. And uh, she hooks up with him, and he says, you know, I have an, an uncle who's very wealthy, and when he dies, the money is going to go to this child, unless the child dies too, and then the money will come to me. And so he gets her the job as governess, after a plastic surgery for this child. And she goes to the house where the child and the uncle live, and uh, with the plot is that she's going to kill this child. Does she? I, I thought you were something different, something strong, rare, exciting, above a stupid, ugly, commonplace world. I'm a woman. And are you fool, you coward? Do you want to sink back into the mob, into a dull, safe mediocrity? Is that what you want, safety? Is that what happens when a scar is healed, that one gets fat that forgets? Yes, Anna, you are a woman. And I have the right to say that because I am the man who saw that when no one else did. Or have you forgotten that too? No. You are a woman, but you are something more. Or at least I'd hoped you were before this heavenly transformation. I could kill that doctor. Why him? Because he has changed my partner into a dove. A tame, cooing dove. Soft and weak and full of love for her fellow men. For the old and the weak and the unimportant. You should love your fellow men, you. Your fellow men loved you, didn't he? People held out their arms to you and said, he has love and life and laughed and everything a woman wants, didn't they? Oh, you know they didn't. I know they did But who else? I saw the real Anna, the heart shining brightness of you. There have been women like you before. They became conquerors, queens, empresses. Oh, Torsten, this is 1941. Oh, I apologize, I forgot. This is 1941, yes. The spirit of love has triumphed, yes. God's in his heaven, yes. <laughs> no, no, Anna. The times are ripe. And I could be, I could be greater than any barring has ever been or ever will be. You thought that I was concerned about my debts, that I wanted money, that I too could live safely and comfortably like the other tame pigeons on this ancestral estate. You didn't know me, Anna. No, no one knows me. I've played the charming, good-natured fellow, the amiable fool, because I was waiting. I was waiting to find someone like you, who had also been cheated. Yes, Anna. God cheated you when he gave you that scar. He cheated me when that little boy was born to take away from me what was mine by right, because, Anna... I can use this power. What others have done in other countries, I can do here. Because another world belongs to the devil. And I know how to serve him if I can only get the power. Power. You're hurting me. Emma, forgive me. I hope I don't have to again. I don't think you will. Well, I'm not going to give it away. Don't oh. give it away. <laughs> da, 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 da. Oh, she was always playing such <laughs> evil, I mean, to use her word, <clears throat> bitches. 
you know. Joan? Yeah. Well, I don't know. She's, I think from 31 to 32, she did like seven films. I mean, she's in so. From when to when? 31 to 32. I think she did like a a total of seven films. So have you seen all most? No. No no way. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. And some of them I've seen and I forget. There are so many movies that I forget what what I've seen and what I haven't seen. I mean, I've seen the great ones, the most famous ones, you know. What's your favorite? What's your all-time favorite? Of which period? Oh, which period? We're going to break it down to periods now. (laughs) Not for a whole... Yeah, that's how we do that. Um, I, of peak Crawford period. What's the peak period? Um, After I, the women? Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I don't really. I don't. I can't play favorites in any yeah. way. Uh, I can. I, if you put a gun to my head and said, "What's your favorite movie of all time?" I might say Marnie, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Marnie. Mm. If I, if you put a gun to my head and what's your favorite Joan Crawford movie? <sighs> hmm. Well. I might say whatever happened to Baby Jane, only because it's a tragedy and it doesn't have a fake happy ending. Mm. A woman's face is, um, I don't remember how the Ingrid Bergman movie ends, but as the writer Gavin Lambert says in his book about George Cukor, who directed A Woman's Face, and you know who George Cukor was, he directed, directed The Women. Directed Star is Born. And A Star is Born with Judy Carlin. Mm-hmm. Gavin Lambert, in his interview book with QCOR, which is a very good book, he says, you know, A Woman's Face is a very good movie until a certain point, and then you can see the wheels turning. It has to end like an MGM Joan Crawford movie. You, know, you can see that it's not going to be an artier film like the Swedish version. It's a, a Hollywood-American movie, and it has to end a certain way. So she's going to learn something, and she's going to be okay. And God is going to come into the picture before it's over with. God? Oh, the actual God? <laughs> and well, the actual and, Lord and, and, shows himself and in the a, woman's no, face. No, but a, a mention of, the, of God with a capital G. Wow. Um, when, can you answer me this question about a woman's face? Is there a scene where she wakes up from the plastic surgery and gets to see her face in the mirror? Well, yes. Oh, I love I that. I am beautiful. <laughs> I love that scene. <laughs> when when you were when you started with Lipsinka, did you know that you did you start pulling a Joan into the act? When was it that you were like, okay, I'm going to do? Crawford. I wanted. I want to start doing her in the act. I want to start putting her as a part of it, of your of your professional work as Lipsinka. Well, earlier I mentioned that that event where she um, that she did at Town Hall that mm-hmm. interview, mm-hmm. and it was recorded. And there were other interviews he did at Town Hall with Rosalind Russell, who I mentioned, and Betty Davis and Lana Turner and Myrna Loy, but. The Crawford was was the only one that came out as a commercial recording, but it didn't come out until after she died, I think in 78, soon after I moved here. And so it was available as a record. That's so crazy. And there was a Sam, it was either Sam Ash or Sam Goody record store on 6th Avenue, right across the street from Radio City Music Hall. And they put that record in the window and they put them it was like an Andy Warhol exhibit. There was just one after the other. It was like a whole wall of these images of this Joan Crawford at Town Hall album. It was a black and white photograph, and it was, her face was the whole thing. It was very graphic. It was from a, 
shot of her from the 50s when her face was so extreme. The eyebrows and the lips and the eyes were huge. Like a whole wall of that image. Wow. And that had such an impact on me. And I got that record. I still have it. I turned it into my show, The Passion of the Crawford. Years later, however, I didn't do that version of that show until 1998. And I first heard the record in 1978. Wow. But it wasn't until probably when I started doing the phone scene in my show Mm -hmm. that I realized I could use her voice as one of the, you know, the ring. And then there's the pickup sound and it could be her voice saying something. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to think what that would have been and what year it would have been. Can't remember. Was because that those that phone scene that whatever sound bites it, it is that I'm saying, it has to be a really powerful sound bite. Yeah. It it can't be just hello, how are you? You know, it has to be something really powerful. And I did find another record of her. Then I didn't know what it was for the longest, but it was on vinyl. It was an actual record. It was an LP and it said on the cover, The Devil's Sister, I think. But I didn't, couldn't figure out what it was, where it was from, why, and why is it on a record? Well, it turned out to be the soundtrack of a television episode she had done in the early 60s of this thing that was on TV called Zane Gray Theater that did a Western, Western. story author. each week. And it was a ah. Western Look at you, Butch Queen, knowing your Western (laughs) trivia. I love cowboys. (laughs) I go to see the women, too. And Um, for a while, that episode was on YouTube, and you could actually see it. It's disappeared from YouTube now. They sometimes come back. We'll we'll light a candle for that episode to come back. If you are out there, if there are queens out there with this episode, upload that shit to YouTube for us now, please. But the problem with that is that whoever owns it will stop them because it'll it'll only be there for a while. Right. So I think the oh. reason it's not there anymore now is because Copyright. whoever owns that show, that old show, in all you know, right. some company in Los Angeles put a stop to it. I did do a show called Lip Synca Is Harriet Craig. Do you know about that show? No. Some of that is on my YouTube page. Oh, I've got to watch that. But. Do you know you don't do you know who Harriet Craig was? Does that it's that a cra- it's a character of Crawford's from um oh, I can't believe I can't think of the movie. What movie is Never it? It's called Harriet Craig. Oh Harriet Craig. <laughs> oh there you go. <laughs> Norma Ray who it was, was it a Norma Ray I think <laughs> So that was your first full Crawford show. (laughs) I landed a good one. Harriet Craig was originally a play, a Broadway play, by a man named George Kelly. But it was called Craig's Wife. It wasn't called Harriet Craig. The character's name was Harriet Craig. George Kelly was a gay man who was the uncle of Grace Kelly. So then in the 30s, there was a movie version made of Craig's Wife with Rosalind Russell playing Harriet Craig. And then around 1950, Columbia Pictures made another version of Craig's Wife with Joan Crawford, but it was called Harriet Craig. And it's about a woman who's obsessed with her house and keeping it clean and controlling it. And Joan Crawford joked about that. 
about her. She made jokes about her own obsession with keeping her house in order. And she would say, you know, well, I played Harriet Craig, and there's a reason I did. Floor, <laughs> <laughs> you call that clean, do you? Miss Jenkins said it was clean. Miss Jenkins said it was clean. Do you think it's clean? Do you think it's clean? Look at that. Do you? Yes, I do. Bed on the floor. We're going to clean this floor. You and me together. Go, go, scrub hard. Scrub. Scrub. This floor is already clean. It's not. I just said. This floor is not clean. Look at it. This floor is not clean. Not a I know it's so hard not to reference the mommy dearest, you know, aspect of her when she when she jokes about it and then the images that we have. Well, do you think the reason she was so obsessed with keeping her house clean was because her own early life was such a mess? And well, at least for me, my obsession with keeping my house clean is control. Like I That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Control. And I feel like I can't control so many things, my career, uh, my happiness, but I can I can clean my house mm-hmm. and I can and I can get it done. You know, was oh yeah. So you turned Harriet Craig into oh yes. So we did a show called Lip Sync as Harriet Craig, and um, I was Harriet Craig. And in that movie version of that story, she has a a young cousin, and so Varlin G. Merman played the cousin, and there is a couple of housekeepers in that. For, version and so we had actors playing that and and our version which was called lip sync is harriet craig i-s underlined lip sync is harriet craig (laughs) and the stuff that's on my youtube page is a musical number that because we put musical numbers into our version (laughs) and the two housekeepers and i do a production number i also have to worry about a jam thief in my Speaking of Harry Craig, do you consider yourself a Joan Crawford impersonator? I don't. <laughs> See how I just slipped that Boom. in. Boom. <laughs> Slip that in. <laughs> and it is a little dismaying to me that other people think of me as a Joan Crawford impersonator. The, w- the way that show The Passion of the Crawford got off the ground was that Christina Crawford, I guess the re- rights to the book Mommy Dearest reverted to her. 
and she decided to put out an unedited version of the book. Mm-hmm. And there was this newfangled thing on the internet where you could order it. So in 98... It was an anniversary, I think. Oh, that's that true. It was a that's 20th anniversary, it, yeah. right? But I don't think... I think it was self-published. I'm not sure. It that. was. She started her own publishing company right. to publish it. She learned from mom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she hooked up with this guy that I know in San Francisco because she did an appearance at the Castro Theater that was very successful. So they decided to go on a little tour. And one of the stops they thought should be New York and recreate the same thing they had done at the Castro Theater. And so they booked Town Hall here in New York, which was ironically where that event took place in 1973 when Joan Crawford did her one and only live interview. And he contacted me and he said, it's going to be a benefit for, I think it was God's Love We Deliver or the Gay Men's Health Crisis. I'm not sure which. And would I be interested in recreating a portion of that interview that Joan Crawford did in 1973 Mm. on the very same stage. Wow. So how could I say no to that, you know? And so we did a shortened version of it. It was only about 18 minutes. But I met Christina. They showed the movie, I guess, after I did my thing. And then Rex Reed interviewed they showed the movie Mommy Dearest. And then hmm. after the movie, I think Rex Reed interviewed Christina. So I pulled my look together without checking with Christina. I had on a black dress and a big red necklace. And I came out of the dressing room and she was standing there. And she had on a black pantsuit with a red embroidered bib. So it, it was there. <laughs> Mommy. And Mommy's she, here. And she said, oh, my God, mother-daughter outfit. Some things never change. <laughs> oh. so, but she was laughing about it. She thought it was funny. She had a sense of humor about it. And uh, it was just a one-night thing, but then... We're just looking at the photo right now. It's amazing. But then about six years later, I said to a director-producer, I said, let's let's turn that into a show. You know, we only did 18 minutes of it, and that recording is about 40 minutes. So that's how that show came to be. Did you but only... I never thought of it as a Joan Crawford impersonation, because I don't think I really look like Joan Crawford. I thought of it as a, a way to use Joan Crawford as a surrealist icon, to mm. use Yay. an overused word, a surrealist icon to make a statement about her, not a way to impersonate her, and not just a statement about her, but about a, state, a statement about celebrity in general and... Mm-hmm. Buying into the whole movie star myth, as we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. and what's real and what's artificial, and that all that ties into the fact that I'm lip syncing the whole thing, which right. is automatically artifice itself. And drag is so much about artifice as well. Yeah, it is. And lip syncing and drag is another layer of artifice. Mm-hmm. Did you only edit from that interview, or did you add other? Joan Crawford things into that performance? Well, the first one, it was just stuff from that town hall recording. And then when it became a full-length show, I realized there were ways to put in other bits bits and remembrances that she may have had. 
and there was a recording of her with her kids at Christmas time from the 40s. And so there, there's moments where she goes back in time to that. And there's also moments where she sings bits of songs because she did make <laughs> recordings of songs, you know. And Joan Crawford studied singing. She was in she, musicals, right? She was in musicals, but she also studied opera singing. There's a recording of her and Rosa Poncel singing together. Oh, my gosh. And Crawford had a very deep voice, and she wasn't bad. I I think Joan Crawford's speaking voice is quite beautiful. It's deep and resonant. It's a lovely speaking voice. And her singing voice wasn't bad. I almost wanted to say her speaking voice is iconic. And so I just said it, <laughs> but it is. <laughs> Everything about uh, Joan Crawford is iconic. But her voice, you, you you know what that, it's like, it's like Betty Davis's voice. It's like, you know who that is instantly. So did you think she has a beautiful speaking voice? I th- I'm beautiful. Uh, I don't well, you, what's, you what's you, beautiful? Use your own adjective. I want to say iconic again because it's in my head. No, she's, I find her, her speaking voice or her voice in general to be stirring or striking. You know, it does like, it does, it's evocative. And maybe because I associate frightening things with her. You know, I think um, what happened to Baby Jane is the first time I saw her. And we saw her together and we were young. Mm-hmm. We watched I'm the movie together. Too young time. to maybe see that movie. I, don't, I wasn't older than 12, 10, probably 10. I don't know. I was young, and I remember being frightened, so that voice has some kind of power to me that um, she's been through stuff. So, Joan, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was the first Joan Crawford movie that you guys saw also? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. It would, it would be a while until I saw Mildred Pierce and Johnny Guitar and the women. Did you always have the reporter in the act interviewing you? Yes. Um, yes, I did. It makes it harder to do the show because you have to book someone else. <laughs> and have them memorize the lines. And they have like, to memorize so it and, the, and they have to be good at it. He's having to, lip, you know. He's lip syncing too. He's lip syncing yeah. too. I think, well, it's, it's a very young podcast, but you're the first person I imagine one of the only people we'll have on who is also a, a diva who so many other people look up to or consider a major influence in their work. And we're, in, we're interviewing so many queer people about who their influences were. And it's amazing to have someone who has influenced so many other artists throughout the years. You Apparently know, inspired I have, so many people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't even know what I was doing. You know, when I started up, I wasn't analyzing. I just was doing what I thought was uh, funny and unique didn't know that I was a postmodernist or a deconstructionist. And if you had told me that's what I was early on, I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. And even when I did my first off-Broadway show and people started saying those things, I didn't know what they were. I had no idea. Hmm. Didn't think of what I was doing as a political act either. Didn't think of it that way. You were just making work that you were interested in. And that I thought was funny, yes. You talked about being at the Women with the Butch Queens. And Nick and I talk about, you know, fandom and, and... kind of obsessing over someone's career and being, you know, finding a community in that. Did you ever have, do you have any moments of that with Joan Crawford? Were you just kind of geeked out over her with with someone or? I have met some people who knew her. Oh, wow. A man named, a man who died only recently named Michael Volbrecht. He was a uh, dress designer and a visual artist. And there's footage of him with her on YouTube 
We were talking earlier about that night in 74 at the Rainbow Room where she was hosting the party for Rosalind Russell. And she is standing there with Michael Volbracht and she introduces him to the person with the cable news camera. Well, he came to see The Passion of the Crawford and I think he was there the same night as Joel Schumacher. And the reason Joel came, he came with a man named Jess Cagle. Jess Cagle, he's one of those people at the Oscars who's always out front. Mm-hmm. And he used to live in my building. But Jess is a diehard Joan Crawford fan. And Joel Schumacher told me that night, he said, I'm friends with Courtney Love. And she always says to me, you're not a member of my church. And the church is the Church of Crawford. Courtney Love is a Joan Crawford fan. Oh, my gosh. Wow. wow. Courtney, write in. Tell us about your love of Joan Crawford plays. And I, I too, I suppose I'm a Crawfordist. You're the Church You're of Crawfords. <laughs> or a Crawfordite. Oh, that's beautiful. JC, Jesus Christ, Joan Crawford. Yes. <laughs> That's fabulous. I she think, is the god in her films. Every time they put she god is in. god. She, she is. She plays she god. To god. She's just talking to herself. <laughs> yeah. well, wait a second. I want to go back to the photographs. So okay. Barbara oh. Stanwyck and she were kind of like frenemies because there also was not footage of, but a recording on YouTube and may still be there of the two of them being interviewed by a woman named Shirley Eder or Eder E D E R, uh-huh. who was a, a radio gossip columnist out of as we Detroit, sit here sipping tea at 21 uh i it's just wonderful to know that there are friendships like that and uh joan crawford and barbara stanwick new year's eve is a big event in everybody's life now what is new year's eve to you joan well i have a feeling that everyone thinks because it's new year's they have to celebrate i don't agree with that i feel that any day that you're happy is celebration. I don't mean that by getting loaded, getting drunk, having a lot of people in. Just celebrate. Have one or two people in. Go out to dinner. Go to the theater. Go to supper. Why does it have to be January 1st? Or December 31st? No, I'm talking about New oh, Year's New Day, Year's. too. You know, they celebrate an awful lot. I, I feel you should celebrate whenever you feel like it. I look out my window over Central Park, look, overlooking Central Park, and say to all those people, have fun, you silly people. And I'm in my own room with a fire going, and I look at all those crowds, and I think, well, have, just have fun, that's it. Because I think the great luxury of people who travel and who work as much as Barbara and I do, and who have so many commitments, business and social, I think the greatest luxury in the world is to be alone. I don't mean completely alone. I mean with one or two people. Of course, with my children, teenagers, uh, naturally I spend the holidays with them. But New Year's Eve to me means home, comfort, and luxury. I'm sorry. I've, I've grown accustomed to it. I've earned it. You've worked hard for it. <laughs> And then, on the same YouTube clip, if it's still there, is Shirley Eater interviewing Crawford in a limousine, and Crawford is drunk, and you can tell she's Good afternoon, this is Shirley Eater, and I'm in an enormous limousine, driving naturally because I'm with Joan Crawford, and it's her limousine. Hey, Joan Crawford, how are you? Uh, Well, I'm fine, except that you saw another limousine behind us. 
that looked exactly like this, and you were wondering who it was from. It couldn't be two Joan Crawfords in one store. We're just coming out of the Robinson department store where you are going to emcee a millinery show for the, what is it, for the what institute? Millinery Institute of America, MIA. Are they serving Pepsi-Cola with the, uh, you know, show with the hats? They'd better. Oh, or else. Joan, I just got back from London. I saw big billboards, and I understand you're breaking records with a picture called Berserk. Yes, we are. We had two test areas in America, and uh, Dayton, Ohio was one, and I must tell you that it was fantastic. We have beat all records. We've beaten all records. That's better. Beaten all records, yes. And it's sensational. And then, on that same clip, audio of Shirley Eater interviewing Barbara Stanwyck after Joan Crawford died, and the two of them are dishing. Let me tell you something. This is exactly what J.C. did hmm. about Francho. And the reason why she was doing it was because she was mixed up with Spence. You mean he had at it? Yeah. Oh, I thought he was only interested in one woman all that time. Oh. And it happened. And uh, she would call people up at one and two and three in the morning. Is Francho there? Is he there? Well, I don't know where he is. He's out drinking and I can't find him. And I'm desperate and she would just do dreadful things. And Francho is with so-and-so. Do you know that? Oh, just terrible. Just terrible. She's a damn good actress, and she deserves lots of Academy Awards off the screen. Honey, she is superb. She is superb. Because she will look you in the eye, and she will make you absolutely believe. Not me, she won't. Me, she will. Not me, she won't, honey. Nah. Well. But she'll make you believe. And Stan Stanwyck is not saying polite things, and it's supposed to be off the record, but it was recorded. Any final Church of Crawford thoughts you'd like to share? Another book I suggest you read. There's a lot of books about Joan Crawford. I mentioned the book by Carl Jonas called Crawford, The Last Years. Mm-hmm. The other book I recommend is called Joan Crawford, The Ultimate Star by Alexander Walker. And the reason Walker decided to write his book is that he wanted to write a book about Garbo. And MGM had said, we will open our archives. You can have access to all the contracts and everything for the first time ever. So he went to Los Angeles to do his research about Garbo. And he did write his Garbo book, and and it was published. And it's fascinating, too. But then he decided to write a book about Joan Crawford, because he said when he was researching his Garbo book, the name Joan Crawford kept popping up in those archives. And why wouldn't it? They were at the same studio. They both got to MGM around the same time. Mm. And they both left MGM around the same time. And this is an important point. In his book, well, in the movie, Mommy Dearest, 
perpetuates this myth that MGM fired her. That actually is not so. She wanted out. She knew she was getting stale there. The movies were making money still, but she knew they were crappy. A Woman's Face may have been the last really good movie she made at MGM. And she went on hiatus. They let her do that. And after she'd been on hiatus for a while, this is all in Walker's book. She hadn't been away for very long. And she said, well, now I've decided I just don't want to come back. Can we make arrangements now to just end it? And Mr. Skeck, who was the boss of Louis B. Mayer here in the New York office, didn't want her to leave. But Louis B. Mayer said, we've made so much money off of this woman. Let's not ring her dry. Let's let her go. And they said to her, pay us, I think it's $150,000. Pay us this amount or do one more movie for us and we will let you out of your contract. Mm. And she paid them. Oh my gosh. Wow. She wanted out. And that was a daring thing to do because she didn't know where the next good script was going to be coming from. Now, she may have already been talking to Warner Brothers on the sly about going there. Right. But they hadn't presented Mildred Pierce to her yet, you know. From 1942 to 1945, I don't think she did a movie. Wow, that must have been a really scary time for her. All the more reason to adopt kids and clean house. I mean, isn't that the other rumor? She adopted kids to get her image a little bit? That's what the movie Mommy Dearest says anyway. She's obsessed with... Didn't you do it for extra publicity? She's obsessed with um, uh, starting all of her kids with C's. What is um, it? It's it's Chrissy, Christopher, Cassie. Christopher, Christina, Cindy, and Kathy. It's just, I don't know why that scares me so much, but it really does. Let's just, John, thank you so much for coming on. We learned so much. We love Joan Crawford and we love you. It's Divas on Divas Week. Yeah, this has been uh, so filling, so excellent. I hope you had some fun. Yes, I did. Thank you very much. It was very fun. I'm thank sorry you. I coughed so much. I don't know why. Suddenly That's I had okay. something in my throat. It's not by an icon, recording. you're a human. Yeah. That's why. Humans cough, icons don't. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Will tomorrow bring the same delight? Though we love each other, how long will it last? You are like a burning flame to me. Will you always be the same to me? Though I taste your kisses, how long will they last? Whatever you may do, this part of mine is true. I'll still believe in you, though love go past. With you, happiness and bliss appear. All my troubles seem to disappear, yet my constant fear is how long will